Okay, everybody, welcome. A warm welcome to all of you to the very first newly revamped, reorganized, and thoroughly well-fed midweek at All Saints. Have you all had something to eat? I think you probably all have. And all of the Chick-fil-A sandwiches have gone. Thank you very much. My heart surgeon will be extremely pleased. Um, Just a couple of quick announcements before we uh, kick off with the next phase of the evening. Uh, First up, a big high five and a thank you to Pastor Shaw, who's taken the germ of an idea. Uh, Who's taken the germ of an idea of, hey, let's, can we, can we spice up midweek Bible study and like add food and stuff and, and turn it into this with the help of um, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Hinsey and uh, I threw in a few ideas which were very politely received before they went away and did what they were going to do anyway and this is all fine, it's all going to be great. Um, so uh, our aim here is just to give us more opportunities for fellowship and singing. Uh, I mentioned, I think it's this week's podcast, there's a temptation I think that we all face uh, to be constantly on the move towards where we want to be without ever enjoying where we are. And I think it's great to be on the move to where we want to be. None of us is the finished article. Uh, all of us, um, the Lord has lots of work still to do in us. But at the same time, here we are as the people of God, uh, filled with his spirit in fellowship with one another. And so why not? make a few more opportunities just to be together and to enjoy fellowship with each other. And we're not always in the book of Numbers. You know, sometimes we're in First Kings, in the good old days, when things were going well and are going well again. And it's such a blessing to be here. Uh, I know that you guys are feeling the same way. That's the first uh, just opening thought. Second, I'm just going to read to you uh, something else I'm very excited about, which was announced yesterday at the, the church planting meeting in Granbury. I'll read it. It doesn't really need any further comment except to say, woohoo, at the end, which you're welcome to do if you like. It's what I feel like saying. The session at All Saints recognizes the need to appoint an individual responsible for leading this effort, not only in the planning phase, but all the way through to particularization. That's the formal term in the CREC for a church being, so to speak, an independent member of the denomination. We also want the Granbury Church to have a full-time pastor from day one and actually experience has shown the wisdom of that. The All Saints session has appointed Pastor Jeff Neal to serve as the organising pastor, and Pastor Neal has joyfully accepted this new role. And all the people said... Because, as I was saying to Mr Whittlesey earlier, it is not many church plants that get a pastor so experienced, so well-loved, um, and so who knows the congregation of the area so well to, to organise it and put it into... Uh, existence, so to speak, by God's grace. And so um, I'm thrilled to be able to watch that from afar. I have prior standing commitments on Tuesday evenings, which stopped me getting there to the planning meetings, but I'm excited to hear about it. Pastor Neil, we've been praying for you. You know we've been praying for you, and we're really excited about what the Lord is doing down there in the, the far distant southwest. As organizing pastor, he is tasked with starting this new church and serving as their full-time pastor, until such time as this church calls a pastor of their own choosing. He will remain a member of the All Saints session, so we'll be able to hear directly from him how everything's going. So, look, that's just really exciting. And as Pastor Shaw was saying to me this afternoon, it just feels like there's so much going on. And what a blessing to be a part of a church community where the Lord is doing so many wonderful things. So, you should all have, 
hand out a little bit like this that's got uh, uh, headed the path to happiness and on it is a translation of Psalm 1, which is more or less what you'd recognize. I've tweaked it here and there just to bring out a few themes that I want to draw attention to. I'm going to lead us in prayer and then say a word or two about this just to uh, feed us not on just food, food, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, so that we're particularly, Lord willing, set up for singing, where we're going to be singing some of the psalms as well. Let me lead us in prayer, and then I want to share a few thoughts with you about this psalm. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we are so thankful to you for one another, for our fellowship in Christ, for this church body of which you've made us a part. We're thankful for the news that we've just heard of uh, the proposed church plant in Granbury and the plans proceeding pace for that, we continue to pray, not just for Pastor Neil, though of course for him and uh, Mrs. Neil, and also for all the other people in Granbury, many, many dozens of people down in Granbury and thereabouts who are reflecting on and thinking about being a part of this new venture. We earnestly want to see the kingdom of Christ advance, both numerically with more people drawn to faith in Christ and in the depth with which people are encouraged to respond to Christ with every aspect of their lives. And so we pray that you would use this endeavour to that end so that Jesus will be glorified and his church strengthened. And as we uh, enjoy this fellowship now with one another, we ask you to open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word and also prepare us to sing your word and to sing other wonderful songs which our forefathers in the faith have bequeathed to us and to do so perhaps with a ever so slightly greater measure of understanding, having meditated on this remarkable psalm, Psalm 1, which is in front of us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me read this psalm. I'm going to read from this sheet, and you'll see it's laid out in a slightly strange way with lots of different coloured words and so on, and I'll, I'll highlight in a few minutes why I've done that. Here's how it goes. Psalm 1. The happiness of the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked and in the path of sinners does not stand and in the seat of scoffers does not sit, but in the Torah, the law or the teaching of the Lord is his delight and on his Torah he murmurs day and night and he will be like a tree planted by the streams of water which gives its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither In all that it does, it prospers. Not so the wicked, but they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the path of the righteous, but the path of the wicked perishes. My ambition... God being my helper, is that over the whole of your lives, for as long as I'm spared to serve you, you should grow in Christian faithfulness and maturity steadily day by day. Uh, I don't think that's a unique mission to me. I think I could say with some confidence that though they might frame it differently and probably state it more eloquently, Pastor Shaw and Pastor Neil would say the same thing, as would every other pastor. What we're here to do is to lead the people of God towards maturity in Christ. And it's a long-term process. 
uh, it's, a, it's a process of gradual growth. And there are many places in the scriptures where the character of this process is spelt out in a way that helps us to walk in the path towards it. And one of those places is Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is, as you know, it's the beginning of, and it's actually the introduction to the whole book of Psalms. I'll say a word or two about that in a second. And very briefly, it describes what we need to do to be happy. And what we need to do to be happy is to turn from the ways of the world and to meditate on and live by the teaching of God. And that will make us like trees, stable, solid, steadily growing day by day, producing, by God's grace in the fullness of time, more trees to keep doing the same thing. So this psalm is as good a place as any for me to share with you that summary of my pastoral ambitions, that for as long as I'm spared and able to serve you, I'd be able to lead you day by day to grow, help to lead you day by day to grow in maturity and faithfulness towards the living God. I want to say just a word or two about this psalm in particular and the psalms in general. Um, The psalms are unique in the Bible you, you know the whole of the scriptures are God's word to us. But the Psalms uniquely are also given as our words back to God. The, the Hebrew title of the Psalms, Tehillim, means praises. Uh, prayers of praise. And of course, it's thanksgiving and laments and uh, celebrations and teaching as well. But they are a divinely inspired way that God has given us to respond to him. If you've ever found your prayer life dry, and I suspect that everybody among us has from time to time found themselves wondering what should I pray for and their mind wandering and their their concerns drifting to other things. Can I commend to you just opening the Bible at the book of Psalms and reading them as words from you to God? Because they're given to you for that purpose. Of course, they're given to us for singing as well. It was the hymn book of Old Covenant Israel. But it's given to us as a way of responding to God. And as such, it is firstly comprehensive. It's hard to think of a major or even a minor theological theme that is not found in the book of Psalms. But it's also emotionally comprehensive. Every feeling that we have, that's a feeling that we ought to have, there are some ungodly feelings, right? Some ungodly emotions. But every right emotion is found in the book of Psalms. Because the Lord knows that when we respond to him, we don't just respond, so to speak, cognitively with ideas. But we are emotional creatures God has given us feelings and those feelings are to be sanctified and offered to him and so if we can discipline ourselves so to speak to pray through and sing through and work through the psalms what we'll find is that we learn to express our emotions to the Lord and we feel stabilized in doing so 
I'm very struck by that quotation at the top of the page. Uh, the, um, this is from a commentary on the Psalms that I was reading just this afternoon by Gerald Wilson, who died halfway through writing his commentary. It's, he got to Psalm 72, I think, which is a crying shame because it's a spectacularly good commentary. And, well, who knows, maybe somebody will complete it uh, in a fitting manner at some point. But he writes this. When I have wakened in a panic in the darkness of the early morning hours, submerged in fear, self-pity, or self-doubt. What, gosh, do you mean theologians sometimes find themselves submerged in fear and self-pity and self-doubt? Yeah, theologians do, I'm told. I can tell you that pastors do. You're not alone. When I've wakened in a panic in the darkness of the early morning hours, submerged in fear, self-pity, and self-doubt, the Psalms have often provided the assurance that my anxieties are known by God who enlightens my dark places. Because he gives us words here with which to express those anxieties, those uncertainties and those doubts. The Psalms, of course, also are... They're not just the Psalms of David or the Psalms of Moses or the Psalms of the sons of Korah. Like the whole of the Old Testament, they speak of Christ. And Christ is the greater David, the greater Solomon, the greater Moses. So we can imagine, in a sense, David speaking the Psalms, Solomon speaking the Psalms, Moses speaking at least one Psalm. We're to imagine also Jesus speaking these psalms. We know he quoted directly from some of them, Psalm 110, Psalm 22 on the the cross. But in some way or other, Jesus is both the ultimate speaker of the psalms and the one about whom they're written. And perhaps no more so than here. Blessed is the man or happy is the man who doesn't do all this, but delights in the law of the Lord. That can be said about Jesus with greater conviction than about anybody else. And just one quick thought before we jump into the details of this psalm. Uh, As we look at this and other psalms, we will have cause to notice all kinds of elegant structural features, which sometimes I may lay out like this with lots of tabs and colours and highlights, just to try and draw attention to things. Because they're poetry. They're poetry. They're not uh, logical prose. They're not analytical language. They're not law. They are beautiful works of poetry, full of uh, literary features and poetic features, one of which I want to mention this evening, because we'll keep mentioning it, and you'll get sick of hearing me talking about it, as you doubtless are already of hearing me say the word chiasm. Sorry. (laughs) But there are chiasms in some psalms, but not in this psalm. This psalm is filled with what is called by scholars of Hebrew poetry, parallelism. Give a quick hand in the air if you've heard of the word parallelism. All right, okay, so we know what we're talking about. Um, Parallelism is just a kind of structure where adjacent lines, if you put them alongside each other, they kind of match. And you can see that in verse 1 and 2 in particular. And so with that, let's just jump in and I'll show you not just how the parallelism works, but I'll show you some of the the things that it communicates to us. So look with me, Uh, Psalm 1, verse 1. The happiness of the man who... Well, that's interesting, because you're used to hearing, um, probably in your Bible translations, 
blessed is the man. And there's a few nods over here. And there is a perfectly good word in Hebrew, barak or baruk, meaning blessed. The word here is ashrei, meaning happy or happiness. And it's not that the man who does these things isn't blessed. That's true. But this just... It calls our attention to something that perhaps, because you know, we're reformed, we're a little bit embarrassed about this, the idea that being a Christian should make you happy. <laughs> but no, um, the Psalms challenge that uh, slightly emotionally stunted, perhaps, response to our faith. Doing what this Psalm says is actually the path to happiness. It might be the path to pain, of course. It might be the path to confronting evil within us. It might be the path to the struggle of long-term repentance, but it's actually the path to happiness as well. The happiness of the man who, and it's very, very striking, the first thing you have to do in order to be happy is not do something. The first thing we need to do in order to experience God's blessing poured down upon us is not to do something. In other words, to turn away from that which is so visible And so attractive. The happiness of the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked and in the path of sinners does not stand and in the seat of scoffers does not sit. In other words, if Paul the Apostle were to write this, um, he might say, the happiness of the man who does not live by sight according to the flesh. By sight, what we see around us that's so there all the time. And isn't it true that there are things around us which are just there all the time, which are things of the flesh? Flesh in the sense of ungodliness. I know flesh sometimes means other things in Scripture. but And this psalm very perceptively highlights that the first thing we need to be ready to do is to put the brakes on. Many of us have known the experience of just being drawn bit by bit into something which harms us because it's ungodly. It's, it leads to further temptation. It leads to harm in our, the relationships that we're in. It, it hurts the people that in our best moments we love the most. And the first thing we need to do is to turn away from those things which are so present to our consciousness. And it's very striking. This is where the parallelism that I spoke of starts to become important in understanding the psalm. Just look with me. And I've highlighted council, path, seat in orange under each other. And then wicked, sinners, scoffers. And then walk, stand, sit. And do you notice there is a progression here? So walking is like, you know, just walking along. I mean, and we've all got to do that. You walk to work or you walk to your car and then you drive to work, which is a bit like walking. And then you stand, and you're sort of stationary, gives you time to look at something, and then you sit, and there is a sense of, okay, here I'm planted. There's, a, there's an increasing degree of rootedness. Just walking along, and then you stop, and you go, oh. And then you realize I've been standing here looking at this for quite a long time, I'm going to sit down. And what is it that there's a danger of orienting ourselves towards when we do that? The counsel of the wicked, the path of sinners, the seat of scoffers. And there's progression here, isn't there? Counsel 
is like, you know, just, just bad ideas, bad advice, podcasts that you think he's a Christian, and he talks like a Christian quite a lot of the time, but then he said something the other day. It's like, good gracious, I've never heard anybody speak in those terms before. Bad ideas, counsel. Then the path, the path in Scripture, it's like at the end of this in verse 6, it's the way of life that we have. And then the seat, it's like you're not even moving anymore. This is where you've decided to make your home. Can you see what there's this progression? And isn't it just the way that temptation works? It starts with just an idea, and you're kind of just walking, and you just notice it in passing. And then it progresses. It becomes a way of life that you embrace. And then it becomes the kind of person that you are, where you're seated. And so also with wicked sinners, scoffers. Um, Wicked is, in this context, about a disposition. It's what somebody might be like. Sinners is what they're actually doing. And then scoffers or mockers, it's what they're leading other people in doing. So can you see you've got this intensification from walk along, standing, and then being seated. From counsel, just ideas, to walking in that path, to being seated again in that way. And then from wicked, just the, the idea of evil. Sinners, it makes its way into your life. Scoffers or mockers, it starts to be how you shape other people. And the first thing we need to do to enjoy the blessedness or the happiness of being at one with the living God is to recognize that when we see it. And to turn away from it. You know, you know some of you who are parents you're with your children and you've watched them grow up and there has been that transition when they're 12 or 13 years old and they go to their first an athletics competition or they join their basketball club and they're not with you for two hours of the week. And then they go to the first time they go to a party with some of their friends and you don't know who all their friends are. And you think it's probably okay. I mean, they're Christians, you think. And so, okay, probably that's going to be all right. And then perhaps they leave home and they go to college or they go and get a job and they're away from home eight, ten hours a day or they're away from home all week or for weeks at a time. And you know you have that kind of free son of, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen to them? And what you, what you long for is that they first recognize the corruption of the temptations that they are going to be faced with as they step away from your protective care. Is it actually, I'm discovering, <laughs> as a parent of a 19 and an 18-year-old um, and a 16-year-old, it's, it's quite difficult emotionally. It's like the emotional version of watching your 16-year-old learn to drive. She came in this, this evening. Sorry, Abby, I got to use this. It's so funny what you said. I drove all the way here and I didn't hit anything. <laughs> Great. That, that's kind of, you sort of hope that's baked in. Sorry, Abby. I'm in such trouble wearing it. Huh? So, the, you know, I'll say it one more time. The first thing, if, if you want to be happy, the first thing to do is to spot those temptations when they're presented to you. Verse 2. So what's the alternative? But in the Torah of the Lord is his delight. And on, the, on his Torah, he meditates or murmurs day and night. Just a, you think, why, why have I said Torah? You, you know why I've said Torah, because the word here in your English Bibles and mine is law. 
And it's completely understandable that the word law should be used because it's used throughout the Bible. It's the, the word that's used in Greek to translate the Hebrew word Torah is nomos, which means law. And there is an aspect to the revelation of God, which is law. It's kind of an in instruction of that, you should do this, you shouldn't do that kind. But the problem with law in English is it's, it's a little too narrow. It's, it focuses us too much on the idea of just rules. And really Torah, and actually nomos, and the law of God in general, is broader than just rules. It's a pattern of life. It's learning to... If you're a good parent, does not reduce their interaction to their children to ten instructions written on the fridge, right? I mean, maybe you had in your house, like, uh, instructions written on the fridge. We had one instruction written on our fridge uh, back in England. It was, this is a no-whining zone. I can't stand whining. Well, actually, there was a more serious reason to it behind it, which I'll go into another time. But, of course, we all have house rules, right? But... Great mums and great dads don't just give rules. They set before their beloved children a pattern of life. This is a way in which Jesus is the fulfillment of Torah. Because he says, follow me. He says, take your cross and follow me. I'm going to take my cross, you take yours. And it's like, okay, so what are the rules, Jesus? He's like, oh, be quiet. (laughs) I'll say something about that, Sermon on the Mount. But first you've got to follow me and watch me and model your self on me. It's also interesting, to me at least, in verse 2, whereas in verse 1 you have this progression, counsel, path, seat, wicked, sinners, scoffers, walk, stand, sit. In verse 2, there's no progression, at least not from Torah. You start with Torah, you end with Torah. You start with the word of God, you end with the word of God. You don't, well, I think it's useful to have the Bible, but really what we really need in order to live a fruitful life and a happy life is a bunch of other stuff. I mean, of course there's a bunch of other stuff that's good for you kids to know, right? Do your math homework, please. Thank you. But you see the point that the psalmist is making. It's like you never get too big for the Bible. You never get beyond the Bible. The great theologian Karl Barth and uh, some of you who've read Karl Barth will know that he's great in some ways and a train wreck in others, but he's certainly great in the sense of influential and in many ways really threw a massive roadblock in the way of liberal theology in the early 20th century. And so in many ways, very good. He was once asked, um, uh, Professor Barth, what's the most profound thing that you've ever learned? What's the most profound idea you've ever had as a theologian? And he said, he's reputed to have said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Because you never get beyond Torah. Notice also at the end of that line, verse 2, in the Torah of the Lord is his delight, and on his Torah he murmurs. My, My translation says meditates, which is true. Meditates day and night. But the, the Hebrew word is hagar, which means sort of muttering. And the, the, the picture is not of somebody who is meditating in the sort of sense of transcendental meditation and, you know, sitting cross-legged or whatever it is they do. I don't mean to caricature, but the, the, the idea is not of emptying your mind. That's pagan meditation, emptying your mind. 
Christian meditation, biblical meditation, is filling your mind with Torah. And so murmuring on it. It's as though when you are just walking down the street, what pops into your head? And it's like, blessed is the man who does not walk in the council. That's, it's the law of God which fills your mind. One of the reasons why it's great to learn to sing the Psalms, because singing is one great way of ingraining it within us. But the thought that our minds would be filled with biblical themes, biblical ideas, biblical prayers, that's what's in view here. And that people would almost see our lips moving as we're sitting in traffic, because we've got nothing else to do sitting in traffic. As you're praying the Lord's Prayer, or reciting Psalm 1 from memory, muttering, murmuring the Torah of God. And that's how you'll come to delight in it. Because you'll see in it greater and greater depths every time you open it. So what's going to happen to you if you do that? And this is where the, um, the structure of the psalm takes a different shape. You can see I've uh, plotted it slightly differently in Psalm 3. Sorry, in verse 3. And in verse 4, there are two possible destinations set out in verses 3 and 4. The one who meditates, murmurs on, delights in the law of God, verse 3, will be like a tree. And look at the richness of this description. It's a long, detailed description. Filled with verbs, highlighted, nouns, Bold purple. And the reason is, of course, because of the contrast with verse 4, which we'll get to in a second. But he'll be like a tree, and you can close your eyes if you want. If Don't if you're not that kind of person. And just you can picture a scene. As verse 3 progresses, it paints a picture, a rich and detailed and beautiful picture of what this blessed, happy believer is like. He'll be like a tree planted by the streams of water, which gives its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither in all that it does, it prospers. Not so the wicked, they're like the chaff that the wind blows away. You see the contrast? It's even greater in Hebrew, actually, because the end of verse 4 is much shorter. It, 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 you need more words in English to translate the Hebrew text. It's, it's as though this rich, detailed, lengthy picture of the sturdy, steadfast tree is contrasted with the ephemeral chaff. Chaff is like the, um, the husk from the outside of grains as they've been harvested and then they're winnowed and you throw them up in the air and all the chaff blows away on the wind. Little dusty husks of inedible, star- not even starchy, kind of, I don't know what it's made of, but kind of dusty stuff. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away and it's gone. Just as the line is so short, so the, the time for which the wicked endure is so short. This tree image, of course, in verse 3, it's one of the most beautiful and instructive symbolic images in the whole Bible. It routinely is used to depict people. I've often remarked on this, you know when Jesus healed the the, the, the blind man, and he healed him in two stages, and the, halfway through he healed him, and he said, what do you see? And he says, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And we all think, oh, he's only halfway healed. Wrong. He couldn't see less well than us, 
he could see better than us. Just for a moment, he saw people as they really are in biblical symbology. People are like trees. The blessed man is like a tree. Of course, the wicked man, the unrighteous man, is like dusty, dead plant matter, chaff. But the blessed man is like a tree. And the image is used in many other places. It's used, of course, I mentioned this last Sunday, in the, in the temple, the lampstand, which is burning with the presence of God, is shaped like a tree as a picture of what the people of Israel would one day become in Christ when the Spirit is poured out on them and they start burning in the presence of the Lord. So Pentecost, you've got trees burning, just as we had a tree burning in the temple. It's just the trees on Pentecost are people trees, people like you and me burning with the presence of the Spirit. But the image is used elsewhere, and this is interesting because it gives us a slightly more practical angle on the significance of this imagery. In Psalm 128... Blessed is everyone, well there's a resonance with Psalm 1, blessed, happy, is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, you shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And that image of a tree, or in this case a vine, a particular kind of tree, is here used to depict the married woman, the wife who has children. And the children are like little olive shoots around the table. And some of you have got quite a lot of olive shoots like, sprouting up all around you. Right? And it's, it's fascinating to me because it tells us so much about how the tree imagery works. It takes ages to grow a tree. I have a s- couple of stumps of trees in my living room. Our living room we brought with us from England. There's a couple of pieces of oak and a piece of apple, which are well over 150 years old in the case of the oak. You can count the rings. And they're about this big. It takes a long time to build a tree. It takes a long time to build a family. And how many times do you just think, oh, wouldn't it be easier if, if there was some quick fix solution to the kingdom of Christ spreading across the world? And let me tell you, there are no shortage of people who are willing to sell you for a subscription of only $6.99 a month. And you can get the t-shirt if you just click below. A quick fix solution to growing the kingdom of God. And the biblical solution is long-term, slow, painful, exhausting, tree farming. The Lord bless you mums who are engaged already in this vital and wonderful ministry of growing the next generation of little saplings. We just need to keep going for another thousand generations for the Lord to show mercy to you, then we're done. Therefore, verse 5, I'll finish in just a moment. You've got two more instances of parallelism. This time, the technical term is antithetic or antithetical parallelism. It's like opposites. And you see the contrasts very sharply. And the contrasts highlight there's, just, there's no kind of middle ground. There are two ways to live, as one well-known Australian and British gospel tract has it. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Sorry, that's... Um, Uh, synonymous parallelism. They're both pointing in the same direction. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Why are judgment and congregation of the righteous put in parallel? Of course, because as Paul says, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more than the things of this life? For the Lord knows the path of the righteous, but the path of the wicked perishes. See the contrast? And it's really interesting, isn't it, that it's not 
that we know the Lord or we know the Lord's paths. It's that the Lord knows our paths. What really matters is, have we been known by God? Uh, To know in this context, as you know, no pun intended, as you know perfectly well, is not just to know about. Knowledge in Scripture has to do with relational intimacy. The The Lord is relationally intimate with the path of the righteous. Those righteous who have chosen that path, not the path of the wicked, not the counsel of the wicked, not the seat of scoffers, but those, the people who have seen the vile and seductive temptations of the world and every day have said, nope, because blessed is the man who does not, happy is the man who does not. The people who've done that, the Lord knows you. The Lord knows your ways. He knows how you feel. He knows all the pain that you struggle that you think not even my big sister or my mum understand. He knows all your joys he's given us this evening. And he's given us the book of Psalms with which to express in words that he has written for us all that we feel and all that we need. All that we feel about him, all that we need from him. And so my ambition just to return to where we started. Um, Well, first, I guess, for myself, um, because, um, you know, if if we're all to be like Jesus, then your pastors need to be like Jesus, and we need to be able to show, not just tell, the way. And so for myself, yeah, isn't that right, Pastor Shaw? Pastor Neil? To walk in the way, and then walk with you, uh, friends, our older and younger brothers and sisters in Christ, in the way of the righteous, in the way of joy and happiness in the Lord. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we are thankful to you for this path to happiness, this path to blessedness set before us. Teach us day by day to walk in it, we pray. And so to be known by you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.